0: Let's pray together, please. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this time to open up your Holy Word. Help us understand it. Help us to treasure it. May we receive its truth with faith and love, lay it up in our hearts, and practice it in our lives. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. Please take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah 43. Two scripture readings this morning. Just a one-week detour from Luke. Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 5 is our first scripture reading. Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 5. Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 5, this is God's Word. But now, thus says the Lord, your Creator, O Jacob, and He who formed you, O Israel. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place, since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored, and I love you. I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. And then 1 John chapter 4, there in the New Testament. 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. verses 16 through 18. First John chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. This is God's word. We have come to know and have believed <clears throat> the love which God has for us. God is love and the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. May God bless the reading of this holy word. The atmosphere in which we find ourselves living in these days in America is one of fear and anxiety. You can sense it everywhere. You sense it in the air, on TV, on the radio. The LGBT revolution is illustrating for us in living color the fact that what we believed was left of Bible-believing Christianity, which was committed to a clear proclamation of the law of God and the gospel, in point of fact, is nothing of the kind ecumenism That's an important word, ecumenism. Ecumenism means getting together with other religions and pretending that you're united when you're not. Ecumenism with false teachers, false religions, compromise on the most basic issues of human sexuality, an unwillingness to express the biblical antithesis with unbelief in the name of being winsome and Christ-like and evangelistic instead of standing firm and immovable on the truth, these have become standard fare. Standard fare among those who ought to know better. There's very little real evangelism taking place because the biblical gospel today is being buried under subtly redefined keywords obscurity, confusion, purposefully misleading misuses of good theologians from the past, and so on and so forth. There's the global pandemic. And everything associated with it that's been going on for almost three years now. It's left many people in a state of fear. A constant state of fear and anxiety. And I want to get across to you this morning. And for all of 2023 and hopefully for the rest of your days in this world. The remedy to fear is always a close walk with Christ. And a close lifestyle of meditation upon biblical promises. The remedy to sinful fear is walking close with Jesus and reading your Bible constantly and praying without ceasing and in everything giving thanks because that's the will of God for us, resting on the gospel. We need to know first that fear is a good emotion. It's a God-given gift to us. Fear is a good thing. Fear is a good thing. That's the first thing. Secondly, when fear becomes sinful, we need to know that. When, when does fear cross the line? from being a good emotion God gave us for our good to being a sin. Thirdly, Christians need to learn to rest in the comforting love of God. And then fourthly, love casts out fear. And so point number one this morning, by way of introduction, fear is a good emotion. Fear is a God-given emotion. There's no such thing as a destructive emotion. The entire array of emotions that God gives us are blessings. Blessings when we feel them and express them in a godly and self-controlled way. Jesus experienced emotions, but only in a perfectly holy way. Jesus was grieved. He was joyful. Jesus was angry. Jesus was, in the Garden of Gethsemane, exceedingly troubled, he said. Emotions only become destructive if they're unrestrained, if they're not used according to God's word I want to encourage you, always remember your emotions are a good thing, but they're to be governed by self-control, that great fruit of the Holy Spirit. Fear is not a bad thing. Fear is not a destructive emotion. Without it, we would not live very long. Without healthy fear, we would do many foolish things. Fear is a good safety emotion. It causes us to be cautious. And one thing that we noticed immediately when we have children, or if you're around little children, as soon as they can move, as soon as they can walk on their own, they don't know enough about the world around them to have a healthy sense of fear. But when we get hurt, that's when we develop that sense of fear. The kids get hurt, they develop a sense of fear. They see the birthday candle, every single one of them, all 10 of them. You show them the little cupcake with one candle and they see a flame. What do they all do? Check it out. And then they make the deductive uh, reasoning, fire in general is bad. Fear keeps us from driving too fast. It keeps us from walking near the edges of cliffs, from trying to play with rattlesnakes, from being careless with guns. Fear is helpful. Fear is good in that sense. And one of the marks of rebellious man is that he has no fear. He has no fear when he should have fear. 2 Peter 2.10, the word of God says, those who walk according to the flesh, the unbeliever, the rebellious person, and the lusts of of their uncleanness, they despise authority. They're presumptuous and self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. The unbeliever has no fear when he blasphemes holy things. He has no conception that he's approaching the most serious danger imaginable when he is offending God. Paul's final indictment to the human race when he lists all those things in Romans chapter three, when he says that there is none good, no, not one. And he speaks of the sins of the tongue, the poison of asps is under their lips. The last thing he says, the summary is, there is no fear of God before their eyes. I had an unbeliever tell me that once over lunch years ago, working at US Bank, shared the gospel with him. And he was, he was mocking me. And the last thing he said was, I have no fear. I have no fear of death. I have no fear of God. I said, do you know you just quoted the Bible saying that? Fear of potential blasphemy is a great protection emotion. Remember the repentant man on the cross? He started out reviling Jesus just like the other one. But when he was regenerated, he immediately feared something for the other guy. Don't you fear God? He said, do you not even fear God seeing you are under the same condemnation? That's a good fear. That's a healthy fear. It's good to hesitate to sin and to be appalled by the wickedness of sin because of your fear of God. Remember Joseph, when Joseph was tempted by Potiphar's wife and he ran out of the house. And when she was talking to him, trying to seduce him, he said, how can I do this wickedness and sin against God? He had a fear of offending God and it stopped him from sinning. That's a good fear. That's a righteous fear. That's a godly kind of fear. That's a fear that God commends and he commands us to have. Our question is now, well, when does fear become sinful then? When is it sinful to be afraid? Fear is only sinful when we fear what God forbids us to fear. I want to give you five things. Sinful fear, under the, under the uh, second point there. Sinful fear. When we fear what God forbids us to fear. I've got five things here for you. And boy, isn't this, this first one is really relevant. The first thing we're commanded not to fear is conspiracies. Did you know that? Now, don't get me wrong, there are conspiracies in the world. I have no doubt there are conspiracies going on right now. But we're told not to live in fear of them. Isaiah 8, 11. If you're a note taker, please write this reference down, chiseled into your house or something. Isaiah eight eleven. For the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people saying, do not say a conspiracy. Concerning all that this people call a conspiracy. Nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. He will be as a sanctuary. So don't live in fear of conspiracies. God is telling Isaiah, don't live in fear of conspiracies. I, I want to ask you, have you ever met a conspiracy person? There was a guy in Ohio, this has been 15 years ago now, I got an email from him every other day to another conspiracy website. And I'm telling you, if I believed a third of what he sent me about banks, about surveillance, about a hundred other things, I would never leave my house. There's a lot of conspiracy theories that are popular today. And many people live in a state of fear because of them. The Rockefellers, the big oil companies, the Rothschilds, George Soros, the German bankers, the Masons, the Illuminati. The communists and a hundred other things that make people paranoid and controlled by fear. You know, I grew up in the time period when if, if you didn't like your neighbor's dog, it was a communist. <laughs> but I want to say to you all, children of God, God has not called us to live our lives in that kind of fear. Not to live in fear of conspiracies. Now, having said that, there are real conspiracies in the world. And we see them in scripture too. If we know of such conspiracies, we should fight to expose them. We should denounce them. Ministers should talk about them and protect their people from them. People conspired to kill Jesus. They conspired to kill Paul. The greatest conspiracy in world history was the Tower of Babel, where almost every human being on earth United by one language, they collectively conspired to disobey God's command to spread out. Isn't that amazing? After the floodwaters recede, God says, okay, now let's let's try this again. Everybody spread out, take dominion over the whole earth, spread out over the whole earth. And they all said, no, we're all going to stay right here and make a name for ourselves. And it was humanity-wide, a conspiracy to discard God's command to take dominion over the earth. They started work on a tower. why they do that? To make a name for themselves. Genesis eleven four. Yes, unbelievers conspire against God. Psalm 2 speaks of entire nations conspiring in their rage to throw God's yoke off of them. And what does God do? We talked about this last time. He sits in heaven and laughs at them. The Lord holds them in derision. Sinners conspire against God. They conspire against the church. The trials that God's people have been subjected to by conspiracies and communist nations like the Soviet Union, Romania, China, and many other places have been horrific. But God laughed at those conspiracies too. Remember the Berlin Wall? Remember when the Berlin Wall fell in 1989? It was an amazing thing to behold. Who would ever have thought that the Soviet Union would collapse, not not from a war, but just because it imploded on itself. It was like a house of cards. It just disintegrated in a puff of smoke. God was finished laughing at their conspiracy to create utopia based on atheism, which was a fool's errand if there ever was one. They succeeded in creating hell on earth for hundreds of millions of people. God reached down and flipped their little tower over. He was done laughing at them. There are conspiracies. Be aware of them, but don't live in fear of them. Don't be petrified by them. Isaiah 8 commands us not to be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. He will be a sanctuary. As Christians, it's real simple. Who are we afraid of? Who do we fear? None but God. None but God. Here's a crucial fact. Man and his plans and his conspiracies do not determine the flow of history. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The wicked and the reprobate do not control human history. God does. God's kingdom determines history. The church outlives all that opposes and conspires against it. Why are we still here? It's not because of how creative or how tough or how thoughtful we are. It's because of Jesus' promise, nothing will prevail against my church. Let them conspire all they want. The church will outlive them all. The church has survived brutal persecutions and even thrived during them. Ten Roman emperors and a thousand other anti-Christian political ideologies have conspired to destroy Christianity and have only made it more pure, more biblical, more godly, more holy. The reason we must not, we need not fear the conspiracies of men is that God's sovereign plan, listen, God's plan includes the destruction of all such conspiracies. God will bring them all to nothing. They may have their heyday for a season, but they will come to nothing. Darkness is dispelled by the increasing light of Christ shining upon men and changing them from the inside out. You see, when men conspire to build their own kingdoms and to make a name for themselves please listen to me they can only build their kingdoms with raw power how how does man build his kingdom with bullets tanks guns terror fear god builds his kingdom in a totally different way by changing hearts changing hearts of stone to hearts of flesh God's rule is exercised over hearts that are supernaturally made new so that there is real love, not slavish fear in the hearts of his redeemed children. Historically, have heretics been successful in their conspiracies? Yes, very. However, listen, you don't need to be afraid of that either. You don't need to fear that either. Here's why. Heresy, false doctrines of God, false gospels, False views of the Holy Spirit and many other teachings, they cannot and they will not ever produce living Christianity. They don't have the power to do it. That's why denials of the doctrine of the trinity, they'll have their, their charismatic spokesperson that'll gather a little following and then it dies off. It goes away. It doesn't survive. Why? It can't produce the real thing. Falsehood can't do it. When the Arians and the ancient church, when they denied the deity of Christ and they were answered by the first Nicene council in 325, the heresy didn't die immediately, but eventually it did. Now it's been resurrected in modern times by the Jehovah's Witnesses and a few other groups, but it's, it's gone. Basically, it died off and the church has not succumbed to that again. False gospels, false doctrines of God, false Jesuses, they come and go, but only the truth can bear fruit that will last. Because it is God who bears that fruit as he pleases. All the LGBT garbage that's trying to bulldoze its way into Jesus' church. It's just another example of a conspiracy that will go the way of the wind. It will, eventually. Side B, as they call it, gay celibate Christianity, so-called. It'll have its heyday, but in the end, it will be total liberalism and apostasy. Didn't we see that happen 100 years ago? Same thing. You see it already with its ecumenical attachment to the false religion of Roman Catholicism. Long long ago, when we did our our study of Revoice, it was kind of like scratching my head. Did anybody notice they had a Roman Catholic monk as one of the speakers at this conference? What's up with that? I thought, remember the Reformation? Martin Luther and everybody, remember that? That was a good thing, wasn't it? This just escapes everybody's notice, apparently. That stuff can't produce living Christianity. It can't. It will not produce living Christianity. It will not bear fruit that will last. Think about it. Unbelievers who are dead in their sins, preaching to other unbelievers who are dead in their sins, affirming them in death culture ideology will produce what? Death. More death. Like all other heretical movements, it will degenerate to its logical conclusion, which will be full-on liberalism and unbelief. Be aware of men's conspiracies, but don't live in fear of them. They can't produce the real thing. God is plundering away at Satan's strongholds, and Christ's gospel continues to subdue men to himself. Don't be afraid of conspiracies. Listen to God's word. Listen to your creator again, Isaiah 8, 12. Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that those people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Fear becomes sinful when we fear what God commands us not to fear. And he has commanded you not to fear conspiracies. Be aware of them. Do not fear them. Next thing. Second thing. When fear is sinful. Fear is sinful when we fear man more than God. Fear is sinful when we fear man more than God. Proverbs 29, 25 The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. It's an amazing thing to think about. The Roman Empire, into which the New Testament church stepped with the Great Commission and the Gospel, it's so much like America today that it's frightening. Rome was a sea of relativism and indifference to claims of absolute truth, just like America is today. And when the Romans heard the claims of Christ, they said, cool, you like this Jesus? Well, bring him alongside of our gods and we'll all get together. But the Christians said, your gods don't exist. And they said, in fact, if you don't repent of worshiping them and you don't believe in Jesus as your only savior, you will spend eternity in conscious pain in hell. And you know, that just didn't go over (laughs) real well with, with Rome. And it doesn't go over real well with people today. Christians were called by the Emperor Nero. You know what he called them? This is a direct quotation. You know what he, Emperor Nero called Christians? Quote, the haters of all mankind, end quote. What do we call today? The haters of all mankind, bigots, intolerant. Nothing new under the sun. And Christianity thrived in that environment. Shame on Christians and churches, that back off on the cultural sins of the day in the name of the fear of man. And Francis Schaeffer said, it is evangelicalism in the name of evangelicalism that is destroying evangelicalism. The same message preached to a similar culture like ours is going to elicit the same response. Don't be surprised when Dr. Drew and Dr. Phil and Dr. whoever don't like it. Psalm 56, 11, in God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Psalm 118, 6, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Fear is sinful when we fear man more than God. Thirdly, fear is sinful when it keeps us from obeying God. Fear is never an excuse to disobey. I'm afraid that they'll kill me if I obey. There are many biblical examples of this fear causing disobedience. Remember Abraham? Abraham disobeyed God, lied about Sarah being his sister instead of his wife twice. Why did he do that? He was afraid. He was fearful. That was a sinful kind of fear. Say you're my sister or they're going to kill me. Peter denied Christ. Why did he do that? He was afraid. He was afraid he'd be arrested. He was afraid he'd be beaten. When the spies came back and told the people of Israel how big and strong the people in the promised land were, the people refused to obey God and take the land out of fear. They were afraid. We can't do it. When fear keeps us from doing something God has commanded us to do, that fear is sin. At some point in your life, you will be tempted to disobey God out of fear. I promise you. If it hasn't happened yet, it will. You will be tempted to disobey God or to be quiet out of fear. That's the third thing. Fear is sinful when it keeps us from obeying God. Fourthly, fear is sinful when it causes us to shrink back from problems and persons for self-protection. Most of the time when fear becomes sinful, it's because we have an unhealthy preoccupation with self-protection and self-survival. When fear immobilizes us and becomes sinful, look closely And see that for the most part, the thing driving that fear is self-protection, self-survival. The more self-sacrificial we become and the less self-centered we are, listen, the less we'll be afraid of anything that we're not supposed to be afraid of. Fearlessness is the natural byproduct of a close walk with Jesus. The more concern we have with the glory of God, the less sinful fear we will have of anything. If the glory of God is utmost in our minds, self-protective fear will not paralyze us from doing what God would have us to do. Fear of embarrassment, fear of looking bad, or fear of people hating us will not concern us if we walk closely with God. So that's the fourth thing. Fear is sinful when it causes us to shrink back from problems or persons because of self-protection. And then fifthly, some people are in bondage to fear because of their sins or they live in fear of going to hell. Proverbs 28.1, the wicked flee when no one pursues. What an image. Always fleeing, but there's no one actually chasing you. That's the wicked. But the righteous are bold as a lion, it says. Unbelievers will at times have a fear of hell, a fear of the judgment of God. And you know what? They ought to fear hell. and ought to fear the judgment of God. When people have criticized us as Christians for using scare tactics and talking about hell, we should answer them by saying, you should be afraid of hell. You should be afraid of God and his judgment. If you don't believe the gospel, if you don't repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ alone, yes, you need to be very afraid. We know from scripture that in the deepest parts of their hearts, unbelievers, they can sense, they can sense that they're hell bound. Even when they yell the loudest, we don't believe in angels and elves and we don't believe in any of that stuff. In the deepest part of their hearts, when their head is the pillow at night, in their quiet, self-reflective moments, they know they're going to hell. Romans 1.32, speaking of unbelievers, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Unrepentant sinners who live their lives in the lust of their sinful nature, are well aware of the fact that the God who created them will hold them accountable for what they are doing. And their heart of hearts, they all know it. And I want to say this. You can't drink enough alcohol, do enough drugs, or experience enough pleasure to make your conscience disappear. You will die. And you will face your almighty judge and maker. As the Holy Spirit breathed through Solomon long ago, the wicked flee when no one pursues. They know it's coming and they're running from it. They're fleeing because they know in their hearts really that God's after them. God's pursuing. That judgment is always one step behind you and eventually it will catch you when you die. John Calvin said, the wicked there are terror stricken at the sound of a rustling leaf. They hear a rustling leaf and they jump. What about true believers though? This is the sinful fear I want to talk about here. What about true believers who live in fear of hell? live in fear of damnation or live in fear of their sins or they live in fear that God is out to get them or God is out to destroy them and they interpret every dark providence, this is, this is payment for something I did when I was 10, when I was 15, this is God getting me back for something or they live in fear that they'll never read their Bible enough or never attend church enough or never pray hard enough or have enough zeal, they'll never do any of that enough to really please God. What about the struggling Christian who lives in fear of things like that? I want to give you this promise in scripture. Listen, Hebrews 2, 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And listen, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. If you're a Christian, you've been released from that fear of damnation, fear of death. If you're a Christian, it's the Holy Spirit who has taught you to rest in the perfect, finished work of the Lord Jesus. Leave that work finished, perfect. Leave what he has accomplished, accomplished. Rest upon him. One of our gracious Lord Jesus' most frequent commands to his disciples was, do not be afraid, do not be afraid, fear not, let not your heart be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place for you and I will receive you to myself. Isaiah 43.1, we just read it. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you, he says. Don't be afraid of anything. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine, he says. Don't be afraid of death and hell. If you're a Christian, maybe you had the worst week. Maybe the besetting sin you thought was gone for the last 10 years reared its head this past week. God's love for you hasn't changed at all. It hasn't changed at all. He's every bit as strong as it's always been. I have redeemed you, fear not, he says. The third point this morning. Christian people must learn to rest in the comforting love of God. Now we always need to take people seriously when they tell us that they're afraid of something. But how do we help people overcome fear like that? How do we help people overcome sinful forms of fear? Because some people, some professing Christians live with fear all the time. Fear and anxiety just characterize who they are have you ever described yourself or heard someone describe themselves, I'm a worry wart. I, I inherited this disposition from my mother or my father or my grandma or something. Yeah, we're just a whole family of warriors. Teach them to trust in the loving providential care of God. Isaiah 41:10, another one, "Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand in the passage that we read isaiah 43 verse 2 when you pass through the waters i will be with you notice not i will prevent you from going through the waters but i'll be with you when you do and through the rivers they shall not overflow you when you walk through the fire you shall not be burned nor shall the flames scorch you for i am the lord your god the holy one of israel your savior Since you were precious in my sight, you have been honored, and I have loved you. Fear not, for I am with you. Notice God just repeats himself over and over and over again. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. I am with you. I am with you. I love you. We need to learn to trust in the loving providence of God. And if we really understood and believed in God's sovereign and good providence towards us, we would literally never be afraid of anything. And we would never worry at all. One of the most glorious things that Jesus taught us, actually two of the most glorious things he ever taught us, and you just, you just got to love it. He tells us, he commands you, look at birds. And look at flowers. Can you just hear the Jesus people in the 70s? Yeah, brother, that's cool. (laughs) Look at flowers and birds. But he said that. You know why he said that? He said that to them so they'd stop worrying about everything. Birds aren't made in the image of God. They're not covenantal creatures. God did not take to himself a bird's nature and die for birds. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Can you imagine little birds just worrying themselves? I like, wonder oh, if there's going to be worms in the ground tomorrow. Maybe there won't be any tomorrow. Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? One minute to your life? Why do you worry about clothing? Look at the lilies of the field. How they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, even Solomon and all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. You know, there's wonderful wildflowers that grow down here. Uh, we don't have them in, in Cincinnati, Ohio. But down here, you have these little blue bell looking things. I've never seen anything like them. And they grow all over the yard. Go out there and pick one and look at it. It's just gloriously beautiful. It's just gloriously beautiful. Look how God clothed a flower that most human eyes would probably never see. He took care of the flower. He takes care of those little birds. He says... If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Matthew ten twenty nine: <clears throat> Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. That's an argument from the lesser to the greater. If he's sovereign over things that are seemingly unimportant and have no bearing on anything in our lives, how much more sovereign is he over everything that comes to pass with us? Remember Nebuchadnezzar, when God turned Nebuchadnezzar into a newt, into Howard Hughes for a while there? The hair was growing out, fingernails all along. After he stands up there, is this not Babylon the great that I have created for my great name and by my great power? And God takes away his sanity. And then when he gets it back, he says... At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? That's understanding God's sovereign providence. So often people, even Christian people, they're they're plagued by unbiblical and untrusting thoughts about what, what might have been if only I had done this, if only I had done that, if only I didn't do this when I was younger. I've ruined my whole life, and I'm outside of God's will now. You know, I've mentioned to you the story of the Reverend David Brainerd. David Brainerd, his missionary work in the 18th century Among the American Indians and the publication of his diaries by Jonathan Edwards ignited an entire generation of foreign missionaries after he died of tuberculosis at the tender age of 29 years old. Before his time as a missionary, he had been a divinity student at Yale University. He was first in his class in his early 20s, and he had been expelled while he was there. During his time there, the faculty, you gotta love this, the faculty started a policy that said students were not allowed to criticize or question the conversion of their teachers. (laughs) During a chapel service, one of those faculty members, you're not allowed to question or think that they might not be believers, prayed this long and pretentious prayer. And after the service ended, someone asked Brainerd, what'd you think of so-and-so's prayer? And Brainerd said, that man has no more grace than this chair faculty member overheard that and he was permanently expelled from yale and never graduated with his divinity degree and he apologized profusely and he begged them for forgiveness so he could finish his studies because he felt called to to pastoral ministry but they refused he had no choice no choice but to go into missions now if he had finished his studies at yale he would have taken a little parish somewhere in new england we wouldn't know his name today But his courage and his tenacity among the American Indians, even while he was coughing up blood and pulling his sick horse into the teeth of snowstorms to get to the next Indian village to preach, it's inspiring. It's humbling to read. And he suffered from debilitating depression and malnutrition and loneliness. He spent the final months of his life in the home of Jonathan Edwards, where he eventually died, 29 years old. Jonathan Edwards got a hold of his diary and read it and thought, wow, this is real convicting stuff. Published it. And that diary inspired an entire generation of missionaries. And throughout the diary, you find over and over again statements like this: spent the whole night fasting and praying for my Indians. Fasting and praying for three days for my Indians. Spent the whole day fasting. Nearly every generation of Christians at some time since then has discovered this man's diaries and have been ignited in their evangelistic zeal. And my friends, it all goes back to one foolish, sinful, prideful comment that he made as a young man. A comment he regretted for the rest of his life. But if he hadn't made that comment, some have speculated the entire modern missionary movement might not have started. I have a question for you. Was that foolish, immature, prideful comment, was that an accident? That's design. That's divine design. Does God use even our sins to light a fire on us? I'm going to be holy now. I'm not going down that path again. Does God do that? Does he use our sins, our poor decisions? Yes, he does. We all know that great text. We all quote it from memory. But have you really reflected on what it means And we know that God works all things together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. I want to encourage you, look at the birds, look at the flowers, consider your own life, how he's redeemed sin in your life. Rest in his loving providence. It includes even the really foolish and the sinful things we have done. I have doubted not at all that Brainerd thought throughout the rest of his life. I still can't believe I did that. Why did I say that? I've ruined my life by what I did. He probably thought the reason I'm freezing to death out here trying to preach to these Indians and he felt like he was a failure. You read his diaries. Nobody was listening today. I can't get these Indian dialects right. I can't speak their language well enough. Lord, what am I doing here? I've ruined my life. Little did he know that after his death, his journals would be published for the next three centuries and thousands of missionaries across the world would take the gospel to the far-flung regions of the world. William Carey, Judson, Patton, Spurgeon. What ignited them? Brainerd's Diaries. Brainerd's Diaries and many, many, many more. When we sin and repent, we need to understand... The loving providence of God, even in our failures and sinful behaviors that we really regret and we ought to regret when we sin. But can God use those things for good? Absolutely. Learn to rest in the loving providence of God and the sovereign decree of God. And finally, this morning, most important point I want you to walk away from this with. Love casts out fear. Love casts out fear. I want to explain to you what this means. Only the power of divine love can overcome fear. Both the love that God puts in our hearts for himself and the love that he has for us will cast out fear. If you're still there in 1 John 4, listen to the passage again. 1 John, 4, 16. 1 John 4, verse 16. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. There's no commandment given to us more often in Scripture than to fear God, but first John 4:16 to 18, when it says, "There is no fear in love and perfect love casts out fear," it's not talking about the wholesome, godly fear that we owe to God. First John 4:16 to 18 is about the sinful fear. It's about sinful fear that's obsessed with self. This kind of self-protective fear and biblical divine self-giving agape love, those are polar opposites to God. God in this manner, in this way, he loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. The love of God is a giving of himself. Selfish fear is the opposite of the fruit of the spirit called love. Sinful fear is a preoccupation with ourselves and a refusal to give ourselves to a problem, to give ourselves to a situation, or to give ourselves to a person because it might cause us some kind of harm. That kind of fear ruins marriages or prevents good marriages from ever happening. People enter marriage with their guard up instead of trusting one another. People protect themselves and they hide from the other when they should be vulnerable. In other words, we love ourselves more than we love the other person. Self-love leads to sinful fear. God's love is a self-giving love. And when we we become like him, we give ourselves. and We're not afraid to do that. Think of the scenario as an obvious example of this. If we see someone being mugged or attacked... We're obligated to intervene, even though we might be endangering ourselves by intervening. Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but in humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Sinful fear is always preoccupied with self, protecting me, protecting my heart, my life, my interests. What's amazing about Philippians 2 is that it goes on to describe the greatest example of humility, the greatest example of the love of God is the incarnation of Christ, his cross, his resurrection, and the place instead of sinners. Francis Schaeffer said, quote, When we see a great big dirty man assaulting a frail little woman, love means we will stop him in any way we can. Fear, sinful fear, is the opposite of love. Fear is obsessing about self-protection, self-interest. Love is the giving of yourself for the welfare and protection of someone else. It is what Jesus did in his death. This does not mean that our God-given instinct of fear when danger is near isn't going to alert us. If we know that we're gonna be shot because we're Christians, we will probably be afraid. I would be afraid and rightly so. That's normal. That's normal. But when fear dominates us and controls us to the point that we won't keep God's commandments, it's sinful fear. Or it dominates and controls us so that we won't love someone, we won't give ourselves to someone, that's when it becomes sin. Think of Daniel. Blessed Daniel. <laughs> Seduced, they, they attempt to seduce him there in Babylon, even gave him a Babylonian name. Remember his three friends? Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, those beautiful Hebrew names that mean Yahweh is my help, changed them to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel's name was changed to Belteshazzar. Their names were changed to Babylonian gods. And they were given all this food and we're gonna make you one of us. He was a lonely unbeliever in a hostile pagan land during the captivity. And he had a personal custom of praying every day at a certain time in a certain place out there in the open. And his enemies, they noticed this and they saw their opportunity to murder him. And they get the king to pass a law saying, Whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. And Daniel's habit was to pray with his window open toward Jerusalem on his knees three times a day. Now, wouldn't it have been logical for Daniel, just close the window. Just close the window. You can still pray. God can see through the window. I can think of many ways to justify half compliance here with the king's idolatrous command. Well, I have a family to provide for. But Daniel will not bow to this ungodly commandment and he will not stop doing what he's always done in honor and love to the one true and living God. Daniel knew this would get him in trouble. Was Daniel afraid of the lion's den? I'm sure he was. I'm sure he was. But fear did not keep him from obeying God and it did not trump his loyalty to God. Why? Love casts out fear. That's what 1 John's all about. You want to see it illustrated right there with Daniel. Not afraid of a lion's den because his love for God has cast that fear aside. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael? The fiery furnace? Here you have thousands of people bowing to the statue and these three young men standing there And they just stand there and they refuse to obey. And the speech they give to Nebuchadnezzar is one of the most powerful and moving testimonies of how perfect love casts out fear ever spoken by anyone in Jesus' church through all the ages. These loving, young, godly, bold men said to the king, Their love for God cast away their fear. Now, do you think these three young men didn't have any fear at all of what was going to happen to them? Of course they did. But perfect love, God's perfect love, cast their fear out. Their love for God and his truth nullified their fear of being burned to death. they had already made up their minds on the matter. Our God can save us. But even if he doesn't, we're still not going to worship your God's. They knew God was under no obligation to deliver them from the furnace of fire, but their testimony of love casting out fear is glorious to remember, it's glorious to hear. Even if he does not, let it be known to you, O oh king. We're not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Perfect love casts out fear. The conclusion is amazing. Daniel three twenty four. After they're thrown into the fire, They had it heated up seven times more. Remember what happened to the guards that walked them up there? It was so hot, it killed the guards. And they cast those three men into the fire. Daniel 3, 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king, look, he answered, I see four. I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt and the form of the fourth is like the son of God. These men of God had a love that cast away their fear. Christian martyr Polycarp before he was burned at the stake had a long dialogue with that Roman proconsul. The proconsul threatened to him threatened to have him tied to a stake and burned. And Polycarp said to him, you threaten me with a fire that burns for an hour and is then extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. Perfect love casts out fear. When we love like this and understand that we have been loved by God and Christ like this, we will not be afraid of anything. Sinful fear, preoccupation with self. Sinful fear is the byproduct of of not walking closely with the Lord. What is Polycarp preoccupied with? What was Daniel preoccupied with? What was Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, also known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? What are they preoccupied with? Remember, those were, were not even their given Hebrew names even after all of the ancient Babylonian social media forces of darkness had tried to seduce every one of them to make them Babylonian, they still have that perfect love that casts out fear. Think of a mother's love for her children. If a mother lives in a part of the country where there's poisonous snakes and she sees a copperhead in the driveway moving its way toward her curious little child, who's reaching out for the approaching snake, she's not going to stand there and think, well, I don't want it to bite me. She's going to grab anything she can and run over there and stomp that thing's head into the ground or snatch her child away or whatever. Is she afraid of the snake? Yes. But her love for the child casts the fear away. And that's what First John 4 is talking about. The love God has for us and our love for him casts the sinful fear aside. Don't be paralyzed by fear and anxiety. The love of God casts it away. When fear immobilizes us, stops us from doing our duty, that's when fear is sinful. Love is more powerful than fear. In our hearts, we need to face fears. Never allow them to prevent us from doing our duties. There are all sorts of ways we allow fear to put us off from our duties. I want to ask myself, ask you, you ever neglected finances because of fear there might not be enough money to pay the bills? <clears throat> Have you ever put off a hard conversation because of fear the person might turn on you and attack you? Have you ever refused to try to talk to a girl because you're scared of girls? Have you ever refused to talk to a guy because you're scared of guys? Have you ever refused to go to the doctor because there might be something really wrong with you? Have you ever refused to go to people that you know you've sinned against to ask their forgiveness because you're afraid they won't forgive you or they might berate you and belittle you because you're finally admitting that you sinned? Have you ever put off writing papers for school because you're afraid that you or your professor won't be happy with the end result? Have you ever refused to share your talent at a church talent show because you're afraid of playing an instrument or doing anything in front of large groups of people? That one might be legit, actually. (laughs) Now that I reread it. Have you ever kept quiet about the gospel when an opportunity was clearly in front of you? Because you're afraid of being labeled a hater, a bigot, or that they might ask you a question you don't know how to answer? Sinful, selfish fear that keeps us from doing so many things we ought to do. And we just confess together, Lord, we have left the good that we ought to do. We've left it undone. So often the reason it's left undone is sinful fear. Fear immobilizes us in all these ways. We should ask ourselves, Are there things in my life that I know I ought to be doing, but I don't because I am afraid? Remember the promise of God. Love casts out fear. Don't be governed by fear. Don't live paralyzed by fear. Rather, let this define you in closing. Question one of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer, that I am not my own but belong body and soul and life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. All of us have sinful fear that we succumb to. Christ died for our sinful fear. Aren't you thankful for that? Peter denied Jesus out of sinful fear. Was he forgiven? Of course. Will we do things out of sinful fear, neglect to do other things out of sinful fear? Sure. Jesus suffered and bled to atone for that in behalf of his people. Our sinful fears will never be charged against us. Praise God. But let us, with the help of Christ, put sinful fear to death. And let us remember that glorious biblical truth, love casts out fear. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord and God, we bless your name that that in you we can be fearless. And yet we still struggle with it. We struggle mightily with fear and anxiety. Lord, help us to put those things to death, to know what it is to really rest in your loving providence, to look at the birds of the air, to look at the flowers of the fields, to look at the ways that you've redeemed even our foolish decisions. May sinful, selfish fear never put us off from our duties. Be with us as we commune in the body and blood of Christ. May we rejoice in the perfection of his salvation that he's achieved for us. And we pray that we would rest in him on this Sabbath day in Christ's name. Amen.